You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I will I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is light to us. It warms our hearts. It edifies us and equips us. It helps us to see Christ, and it tells us of things which are far too great for us to comprehend and to know We thank you for all that you have revealed in your word. Help us by your grace, we pray, to bow our knees before that, to acknowledge that you are our God and our sovereign King, and to love you as you have revealed yourself in the pages of Holy Scripture. Send your spirit to be our teacher, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have set the stage, or the scene, as it were, for this next very hostile confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, Every time the Pharisees and Jesus are together in the Gospel of John, the Pharisees as a group, it is hostility. It is conflict, strife, and a discussion. And there is um, hostility here even in this passage. And we've just sort of seen how the stage has been set for John to tell us about this next confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Remember, there were some Pharisees. They were few in number. They are relatively quiet. And that, but just a few Pharisees in John's Gospel that were not hostile to Jesus. Nicodemus, for instance, he came to Jesus by night and said, We know that you are a man sent from God, for no man can do the works that you do unless God is with him. And other religious leaders, others of the Pharisees, seemed somewhat willing to give Jesus a hearing or at least a consideration when they said of Jesus in chapter, at the end of chapter, uh, sorry, earlier in chapter 10, these are not the words or the deeds of a man who is demon-possessed. These are not the words and the deeds of a man who is a blasphemer. So there were a few in number who were willing to say, whoa, 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 whoa a second. Our law does not judge a man before it hears him, does it? Let's cool it off and let him speak for himself and give him a fair hearing and a fair evaluation. But for the most part, the Pharisees as a whole, every time they are in John's Gospel, it is conflict and strife with Jesus. And the passage that is before us is no exception. And we see here now in this following passage a conflict, really an expression of their unbelief, and then Jesus' explanation of their unbelief. And that's going to be our our, uh, outline for this morning, an expression of the Pharisees' unbelief, and then Jesus explaining their unbelief and telling them why it is that they remained in unbelief. And we saw last week that this happens at the Feast of Dedication. It is winter, and uh, if you weren't here for us last week for the, the history lesson, I guess it was, on the Feast of Dedication, you might want to listen to that because it really sheds light on everything else that comes below. It adds significance, or at least it highlights the significance of Jesus' claim to be God later on in this chapter. 
So it was the Feast of Dedication. We know that it was winter. It was likely cold and wet, and the landscape was dead and rainy, which might explain why it was the rainy season. We don't know if it was rainy on this day, but it was the rainy season, which might explain why John says that Jesus is walking in the portico in the temple and the portico of Solomon, under the covered area, among the colonnades there, out of the way from the elements, when the Jews come up to Jesus and now they confront him again. And we see in the following verses, Jesus take everything he has taught in the first half of this chapter, that great shepherd discourse, that whole lengthy thing, he summarizes it down in almost a bullet point fashion. Boom, 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 boom. He summarizes it and states everything he has already said to these Pharisees, now again on this second occasion. So let's look at the text. We'll look first of all at their expression of unbelief in verse 24, and then we will look at Jesus' explanation of their unbelief in verses 25 and 26. Verse 24, The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now that's an expression of irrational and inexcusable unbelief. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now I want you to notice, first of all, how they gathered around him. That word gathered around is actually a rather weak translation of a very strong word. The word actually means to surround, and it is translated that way. For instance, in Luke chapter 21, verse 20, when Jesus warns, when you see the Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her destruction is near. It's a hostile term, and it's in, and John uses it to describe a very tense scene. It's not that the Jews sort of gathered around him like people would kind of gather around you at a picnic to, to hear you arrange something or to spell out the rules for a baseball game or something like that. No, no, they surrounded him. The Pharisees surrounded him. They encircled him, they hedged him in, and they cut off every possible way of escape. And why do you think that they would do that? I'm just going to give you my own speculation as to why they would do that, but what happened the last time they had him in the temple for a confrontation? Chapter 8, verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him, and what did he do? He hid himself and went out of the temple. Can you imagine the Pharisees getting together after that little incident, talking? Now, guys, we need to find out what happened, because he was there one minute, and he was gone the next. Now, what happened? How did he escape us in the temple? Levi, last time I saw him, he was standing right next to you. Now you tell me, where did he go? I don't know. I looked down to pick up a stone. I looked up and he was gone. He was there one minute. He was gone the next. Okay, listen, guys. Next time we have him surrounded, we're going to surround him. We're going to hedge off every possible way of escape. That's what they did in the temple. They surrounded him. Last time they had him in the temple, he disappeared from amongst them. He hid himself and walked away. And they had no idea how that happened. It was a supernatural act of him hiding himself from their from their eyesight. But... They're not going to let that happen again. Now they have him in the temple, and they have cut off every conceivable route of escape, and they have encircled him in. And John says, they kept asking him. The word means to kind of pester. It's a continual word. They asked him, and they asked him, and they asked him. This is a verbal assault. And they're asking him this question. If you are the Christ, then keep, keep us, don't keep us in suspense any longer. Tell us plainly. And they kept saying to this, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Now that's the question. And this is a very interesting question. It's actually kind of difficult to translate the question that they're asking, and the question can be taken a number of different ways. The new NAS, the NASB, the New American Standard, translates it that way. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? The King James translates it, How long dost thou make us to doubt? Which kind of seems to be the same sense of it. But no matter what English translation you're having in your lap, 
the translation is a little bit of a mixture of translation as well as interpretation because the Greek wording is kind of difficult to translate and a little difficult for us to understand, and it could be taken a number of different ways. Let me explain it. If you were to translate just a word-for-word Greek translation, it would read this way. When the soul of us do you lift up? When the soul of us do you lift up? Now, how do you translate that? If we had just read that, when the soul of us do you lift up, you would have said, what are they talking about there? Well, we have to kind of look at the context and say, what, what question are they asking? What is the essence of it? And there are a couple of different ways of taking the question. First of all, that phrase, the lifting up of the soul, can be used to speak of religious aspiration. Like, for instance, Psalm 25, verse 1, where the psalmist says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. We understand the use of that, right? The, the lifting up of one's soul in aspiration toward God in worship. Certainly that is not what the Pharisees are describing. They're not coming to Jesus in any sincerity and saying, tell us, when are you going to lead us in aspiring worship to God? That's not the essence of their question. So we can kind of rule out that possibility. Second, you can see how this would be taken as the question, how long do you keep us in suspense? We have kind of a modern idiom where we say something similar. How long are you going to keep me hanging? Right? In the English we say that. How long are you going to keep me hanging on this? We speak of cliffhangers or somebody kind of hanging on every word. And that means how long are you going to kind of keep us up in the air wondering? What, what is it that you mean? Who, who are you? How long is, how long do you keep our souls lifted up? Suspense. Now, if that's how we are to understand, and let's just assume for a second that it is, let me ask you this question. Did they have any reason to doubt who Jesus was? To be in suspense as to whether he was the Christ or not? Did they have any real legitimate reason to wonder who he claimed to be? He had told them on countless occasions that he was the Son of Man. He had talked about being sent by the Father. He had talked about coming here to do the Father's will. He talked about being the I Am, the light of the world, the bread of life. He talked about being the, the Son of God. He used all of those titles, all of the Messianic titles of, of the Old Testament of himself. Did these Jewish Pharisees really have any doubt whatsoever as to who he was or any legitimate reason to say that they were in suspense? I would say no, they did not. But what they are implying is that Jesus has not been straightforward with them. You have not given us adequate evidence. You have not revealed to us enough to be able to really tell who it is that you are claiming to be. And the truth is he had given them more than enough information, more than adequate revelation. He had not only declared who he was, he had explained to them who he was. At length, he had given them information as to who he was. So did they have any legitimate reason to really be in suspense? I wonder who he is. We're just waiting to hear you finally tell us whether you're this or whether you're that. They didn't have any legitimate reason to say that because they knew exactly who he claimed to be. And the last time they were in the temple, they picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was claiming, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of Man, and that he was the Son of God. This is, by the way, a very common tactic for unbelievers to use. People whose hearts are hardened in rebellion and wicked will oftentimes feign a willingness to believe if you just provide a little more evidence. Have you run, run into that unbeliever? Look, I'm open. I'm, I'm a rational person. I'm a reasonable person. I'm open to follow the evidence wherever it might lead. If you show me enough evidence that God exists, and if you show me enough evidence that Jesus is God, and if you show me enough evidence that I'm a sinner, I'm willing to believe. I'll follow the evidence wherever it leads. But the problem is that I'm not a believer now. I'm an atheist now because there's just simply not enough evidence. You realize that's a canard? They are pretending a willingness to believe when in reality 
It doesn't matter what evidence you provide. They will not believe. They will not. Why? Because the issue is never a lack of evidence. What is it? It's a love for darkness. We've seen this all the way through. John, we started it in chapter 3. The issue is not a lack of evidence. It's a love for darkness. And that's what they're saying. They're feigning a willingness to believe. Listen, don't, don't hold us in suspense. Just tell us plainly who we are. Just give us the evidence. Make the claim. And that would be sufficient. And that is what unbelievers do. They feign a willingness to believe as long as you present the evidence. Bertrand Russell once said, if I die, and Bertrand Russell, by the way, was a famous atheist. Bertrand Russell said, if I die and I find out that God exists, the first question I'm going to ask him is, why did you not give us enough evidence? Why did you not give us more evidence? That is such a canard. Listen, we have a universe full of evidence that there is a creator. You have a Bible full of evidence that there is a creator. And you have a conscience full of evidence that there is a creator. It's more than ample evidence. The problem is not evidence. The problem is that the unbeliever does not want to let go of his darkness and his sin. And he will not believe. Do you remember what the what Jesus said to the Pharisees when they came up to him and said, do us a sign, show us a sign that you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, no sign is going to be given to this wicked generation except the sign of Noah. Just as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three nights and three days in the, in the belly of the earth. And Jesus refused to give him a sign. Why? Because it didn't matter what sign he did in their presence, they weren't going to believe. It didn't matter what the sign was. And same thing in John. It's John chapter 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. What did the Pharisees do? They, Lazarus was dead. Now Lazarus is alive. Is that enough evidence? That was evidence. And what did the Pharisees say? We need to kill him. We need to kill him before people start believing in him. Evidence is not the issue. It is a love for darkness. It's always a love for darkness. That is why unbelievers remain unbelievers. Second, it might be that they are asking him, how long do you keep our souls lifted up or in suspense? There's a second way of understanding their question, and this is kind of an interesting take on it. Some commentators have suggested this, that what they're really asking is, how long do you lift or take away our hearts? Because the, the word suke is for soul or mind, and arrow meaning to lift or to carry away or to take away from somebody, to hoist up. So Jesus, they're asking Jesus, how long, how much longer are you going to steal hearts? And the essence of the question would be this, much like Absalom in the gate of Jerusalem when he stole away the hearts of the people who came into the city from his father David. You remember that story from the Old Testament? Absalom, through subversion and through deceit, literally took away the hearts of the people from David. And it might be that the Pharisees are asking the same thing. How much longer are you going to, by deceit and deception, steal away the hearts of the people toward yourself? So tell us plainly who you are and stop using the subversion and the deception to steal away or to take away people's affections and their hearts and turn them toward you. That might be what they're asking. It also might be, and here's a third possibility, it might be that what they're asking is, how much longer until you take away our lives? In which case they're asking us, making a statement similar to what Caiaphas makes in chapter 11, verse 48, when Caiaphas, as high priest, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees got together and Caiaphas said this, if we let him, that is Jesus, if we let him go like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So that means that this question then would be this, how much longer or why are you doing what you are doing and posing a threat to our physical life and our spiritual life? You are literally going to take away from us our lives, our souls. In other words, if you keep 
people keep believing in you and you keep doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying and people believe upon you, you pose a real and present danger to the nation of Israel. You're going to take away our lives because the Romans are going to sniff a rebellion in the making and they're going to come in and they're going to take away our nation. How much longer are you going to threaten or take away our souls? Now, either one of the, any of those three possibilities would be a good rendering of the idea there. Any one of those is possible. But here's, here's the two, two keys here. No matter which one of those three things you think Jesus is asking here, all of them fit the context because all of them are accurate descriptions of how the Jews viewed Jesus. They viewed him as a threat to their safety and their security. They viewed him as a deceiver and a false teacher. They viewed him as somebody who was stealing away the people's affections from them. They viewed him as being deceptive and subversive and deceitful. That was their view of Jesus. The second thing that is important to recognize here, no matter how we take this question, is that they, these Pharisees, have rightly understood that the key issue with Jesus of Nazareth is this. Who is he? Who is he? They know that. Who is it that he claims to be and what are the implications of that claim? They've nailed that right on the head. They understand it. Are you the Christ or are you not the Christ? And what they're asking him is, if you are the Christ, then tell us plainly. And by plainly, they don't mean in non-mysterious language. Actually, the word means publicly or openly. Tell us openly if you are the Christ. Stop telling the individuals here and the individuals there, and maybe your disciples are in on this. Come out and make a public statement. Stand up in the temple in front of all of the crowds and say, I am the Messiah. Now, had Jesus ever said to the Jews that he was the Messiah? That's what they're asking him to do. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, I told you, and you do not believe. Now, when had Jesus said to the religious leaders that he was the Messiah? Jesus had told the woman at the well, right? When she said, when Messiah comes, he's going to explain all this to us. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. And she worshipped and she believed without any signs, without any miracles. She believed and she went in and told the townspeople. They came out and they believed his declaration that he was the Messiah. And Jesus had said to the man born blind that he was the Messiah when he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? You're looking at him. I'm he. And the man bowed down and he worshipped. And a few Pharisees were there for that encounter. But had Jesus ever said to the Jewish leadership, I am the Messiah? As far as we know, he never used those words, I am the Messiah, to the Pharisees. But you know what he did do? He actually went far beyond that. He didn't just tell them he was the Messiah or make that claim. He went back to the Old Testament and he quoted Old Testament passages and say, those which speak of the Messiah, those are speaking of me. Everything Moses wrote about was me. I'm everything that the prophets wrote about. That was me. All of the allusions and the titles and the names and the works of the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, I fulfill those. I do those. That is me. He went back and he explained all those Old Testament allusions to the, to the Jews. Remember chapter 5? He is the divine son. He is the judge of all men. The father, not even the father judges anybody, but he has committed all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. And it is impossible to honor the father without honoring the son because the son has been sent by the father to do all the father's will and to do everything that the father gave him to do. And Jesus said, I do nothing on my own initiative, but only those things that I see the father doing. And one of these days I am going to speak and all men saved and unsaved, just and unjust, will stand before me and I will resurrect all men, some to eternal life and some to eternal damnation, and I will be the judge of all men because I am the person that Moses and the prophets wrote about. Now, did he ever use the phrase, I am the Messiah? He never said that, but you know what he did do? He explained 
his entire messianic ministry, his entire messianic person to the Jews. He revealed more to the Jewish Pharisees than he ever did to the woman at the well, and certainly more than he ever did to the man born blind. What did he say to the woman at the well? I am the Messiah. And she believed without a miracle, without a single miracle. These Jewish leaders had heard all of John 5, a lot of John chapter 6, all of his teaching in the temple in John chapter 7, the whole chapter 8 discourse. They saw the man born blind, healed of his blindness, and now they had heard the whole Good Shepherd discourse. Had he ever claimed to be the Messiah? Yeah, he did. Did he use those words? No, he didn't, but he went far beyond that. He explained his entire messianic ministry to those Jewish leaders out of the entire Old Testament. They understood exactly what he claimed to be. So why are they asking him, if you are the Christ, tell us openly? Do you realize it's just a pretense so that they could get him arrested? And Jesus doesn't give them an answer. He doesn't give them a yes or no answer. They just wanted a yes or no answer. They expected him to say, all right, I'm the Christ. Or no, I'm not the Christ. And if he says, I am not the Christ, then they can say to him, well, then nobody should be following you. Here we have it from his own lips. He's not the Christ. He's a deceiver. But if he said, I am the Christ, he would be playing right into their hands in two ways. First, because they believed that the Christ would be a revolutionary, a political leader who would deliver them from Rome. So if he said to them, I am the Christ, then they would have said, Caesar, excuse me, Caesar Romans, this guy claims to be a king. And anybody who claims to be a king is no friend of Caesar's. Arrest him. And the Romans would have arrested him. All they were looking for was a pretense to have him arrested. And Jesus saw right through it, of course, just as you and I can see right through it. And he didn't answer them questions and answer their question in yes or no fashion. Instead, he went back to his record. He pointed to his record. Look what he says in verse 25. I told you and you do not believe and the works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me. He points to two things, his words and his works. I have already told you everything you need to know and I have already shown you everything you need to see. They had more than enough evidence to believe, but they would not believe. Why? Because they loved darkness and they hated him and he was the light and they were hostile to him and they did not want to to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. And so they rejected him and they rejected him in unbelief. That is, as it were, the human explanation for their unbelief. And that is the condition in which all men are unless God sovereignly does something to us so that we will believe unless he changes the heart and regenerates us and gives us a new nature and open our eyes to the truth and sets us free from the bonds of sin, no man can and no man will believe. Further, no man can and no man will believe unless he is of Christ's sheep. Verse 26, this is an explanation for their unbelief. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Why did they not believe? Because they didn't belong to him. All of chapter 10, he's been talking about those who belong to him. These are my sheep. The Father has given them to me. The Father loves them. The Father loves me. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. When I call, they hear me. They come to me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. I keep them from perishing. I give them abundant life. And I secure them everlastingly for my own glory. That is what he said in John chapter 10. Now he gets to these Pharisees and he says to them, here's the reason why you do not believe. Because you're not of my sheep. Now, as we have seen all the way through the Gospel of John, we've seen this over and over again. These two truths go together. Unbelief viewed from the human vantage point is due to the fact that the unbeliever loves his sin and loves his darkness. And he does not want to get rid of it. He does not want to give it up because he loves these things. And he is unwilling to be convinced. He is unwilling to change his mind. And he's unwilling to turn from darkness to light. And so he cannot because he is unwilling to. And the human explanation for unbelief is that you love darkness. On the other side of that, the divine unbelief viewed from the divine perspective, you do not believe because you're not his sheep. 
both of those truths must be held together. And both of those truths must be embraced. And to deny either one of them is to be unfaithful to Scripture. To say that the only reason unbelievers do not believe is because God has not chosen them is not faithful to Scripture. That's not true. Or to say that the only reason unbelievers do not believe is because they love darkness and has nothing to do with the sovereign purposes of God. That is unfaithfulness to Scripture, and that is wrong. But to say that unbelievers do not believe for the human reason because they love darkness and for the divine reason because they do not belong to the Son because they are not His sheep, that is those two truths held at the same time, and we must believe both of them. That it is true both that the unbeliever loves his darkness and that the unbeliever does not belong to the Son. What does Jesus say is the cause of their unbelief? You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now he states it both positively and negatively. Negatively first, you don't believe because you don't belong to me. But then he uh, states the same truth positively in verses 27 through 30, which we're going to look at next week. Verses 27 through 30 is, if you were my sheep, you would hear his voice, verse 27, and he would be known by them, or by Christ, and they would follow Christ. And verse 28, he would give them eternal life, and they would never perish, and no one would ever be able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if they were his sheep, then they would hear him. But the Pharisees did not hear him. Why? They weren't his sheep. If they were his sheep, they would have believed. The Pharisees did not believe and receive eternal life. Why? Because they are not his sheep. So stated positively, if they belong to him, they would believe. Stated negatively, they did not believe because they did not belong to him. Now, if you're an Arminian, you have to say that the reason that Jesus should have said in verse 26, you are not my sheep because you do not believe in me. But that's not what Jesus said. Why is it that they would not believe? Because they're not his sheep. What is the cause of their unbelief? You say, well, the cause of their unbelief is because they did not, by an act of their own free and uninfluenced will, choose to believe in him. Well, let's look at the text. That's not quite right. Well, they did not believe because, Jesus says, though you are my sheep, you have the free choice whether or not you're going to fall into my flock or not. Is that what the text says? It's not what the text says. What does the text say? The text says, you do not believe because you're not mine. That's what the text says. That tells us that believing is determined by our belonging and not the other way around. An Arminian would have to say, we are not his sheep because we do not believe. In other words, our belonging is determined by whether or not we believe. Jesus is saying the opposite. Your believing is determined by your belonging. Now listen, as a general rule, I hold this to be true, that if your theology is the opposite of Jesus's, you need to reevaluate your theology. Jesus is saying that it is our belonging that determines our believing. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If they had been his sheep, they would have believed. Second, not obviously we can we can glean from this that obviously not everybody has been given by the Father to the Son. See, an Arminian has to say that either the Father has given nobody to the Son, and we become his by our belief, our own free act, or the Father has given all of humanity to the Son, and some jump in or jump out of the Son's favor depending on what they do. Either one of those two things. 
But what does the text say? Verse 29, the Father is the one who has given a people to the Son. And it is obviously not everybody. How do we know that? Because Jesus said to these same Pharisees, in many of these same Pharisees in John chapter 6, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. So if the Father has given all men to the Son, then what would be the result of that? All men would what? Come to the Son. And all men would behold the Son, and all men would believe, and all men would be raised up by the Son. That's John chapter 6. But Jesus said, it is all that the Father has given to me that will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Because this I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given to me, I lose none but I will raise them up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that all who believe in me will receive eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. If the Father has given all men to His Son, then all will believe, all will see Him, all will be saved, all will receive eternal life, and all will be secured, and all will be raised up to eternal life at the end of time. That means there will be nobody in hell. But if the Father has given no one to the Son then Jesus' statement in verse 29 doesn't make any sense because he says, there is a group whom the Father has given to me. And he's talked about this all the way through John 10, and he talked about it in John chapter 6. So what are we to conclude? We have to conclude, obviously, that Jesus has given a portion of people, a group of people, called the elect in Scripture, to his Son. The Father has committed those people to his Son. It's not everybody, because Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, you are not mine. You don't belong to me. I know my own, and I give them eternal life, and you are not my own. You do not belong to me because the Father has not given you to me to save. The Son will come to do all that the Father gave him to do. The Son will come to die for, and to gather in, and to regenerate, and to secure, and to preserve, and to raise up the entire company that has been given to him by the Father. If the Father has given all of humanity to the Son, then Jesus Christ is about the greatest failure that the world has ever seen because he has lost far more sheep than he has gathered in. But that's not true. He's not a failure. He will infallibly save every last one that the Father has committed to his Son because he is a perfect Savior. And he does fully and finally and faithfully the word of the Father in every way. So not only does our belonging determine our believing, but the Father has not given all of humanity to His Son. He has given a portion of humanity to His Son, and the Son will save them. And third, it is not an act of our will or something that we do that makes us His sheep. In verse 29, Jesus said, it's the Father who has given them to me. It's not all of those who have chosen to become my sheep are my sheep, but all of those whom the Father has given to me are my sheep. Now, if you're an Arminian, then you have to say, that the Father has given a whole bunch of people to the Son, and it's an utter shock to the Son who actually comes to Him, because it's whoever you know chooses by their own free will. And there's nothing that the Father or the Son or the Spirit has done for anybody that secures anything on their behalf. Because the Father and the Spirit and the Son have done everything they can, and now they have just left it up to happenstance. Whoever happens to choose to fall into this salvation, or whoever we can trick to come into the kingdom, those are the ones that we can get saved. But that's not how our blessed, gracious, and sovereign triune God has worked. This should encourage us. This motivates evangelism, by the way. It doesn't squelch evangelism. It motivates evangelism. And it should fill our hearts with wonder, love, and praise toward a Savior who would do this. That our Father would love us and set His affection on a group and that we would be part of that group. Why? Us? We don't know that. We're not told that. But that the Father would love us and set His affection on us and then give us to His Son 
And then that the Son would come to die for and to save and to pay the debt for and to secure salvation for that group of people. And then that the Holy Spirit Himself would regenerate and bring to new life all those whom the Father has given to His Son. That is the work of redemption by our blessed and gracious and sovereign triune God. Why do unbelievers not believe? Viewed from the human perspective, they are accountable and responsible for their unbelief because they love darkness. But viewed from the divine perspective, they do not believe because they're not His sheep. If they were His sheep, they would believe. Why do you believe? Because you made a good decision? Because you were spiritually inclined? Because you were less a slave of sin than somebody else? Because you're better looking than somebody else? Because God's lucky to have you on His team? Why did you believe? You believed because you were a sheep. That's what it boils down to. If you're a believer, you were His sheep. What made you His sheep? Not your choice. Not your deeds. Not anything done in righteousness. Nothing you can boast of. The Father's sovereign pleasure and His grace gave a people to His Son. And He said, Son, save them. And the Son said, Gladly, Father. And He came and He died and He saved them. And then the Spirit of God regenerates them. All to the praise of the glorious, gracious, triune God. All to the praise of His marvelous grace. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be the recipients of such an infinite and awesome and eternal salvation that predates time. We thank You that You have chosen us in Your Son, that You by Your grace have made us belong to Christ so that we might believe, and that You by an act of Your grace have secured forever the salvation of those whom You have given to Your Son. Thank You that our salvation does not rest upon what we do. Thank You that it does not rest upon any response or righteousness in us, but rests entirely upon the work of our blessed God. We give You our praise, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.